Our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 13, beginning in verse 18 this morning, Luke 13, verse 18. You will find that on page 873 in the Pew Bible, and I I want to especially encourage you to have God's Word open uh, this morning. Uh, We have a number of verses to get through, and delighted to do so, but we will just be going verse by verse, going from 18 all the way to verse 30, and so... I think you'll find it helpful to have a copy of God's Word available to you as we work through this passage. So Luke 13, verse 18. Hear now the Word of God. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord... Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south, And recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first. And some who are first will be last. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And we pray in your kindness and goodness to us. For your own name's sake that you would help us to understand it. And apply it to our lives that we might be more conformed to our brother and Savior, Jesus. That you would do this for your glory. And that even if you'd be pleased that you would bring the lost into your kingdom, you would invite them into your home that they might find salvation in Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. It was on a hot and humid day in August of 1806 in Massachusetts. When Samuel Mills and four other students at Williams College were discussing their faith as they took a walk. Suddenly a storm rose. The pouring rain and the nearby lightning strike was all the encouragement that these five students needed to seek shelter, which they found on the backside of a haystack. While they waited out the storm, they decided to pray. Specifically, they wanted to pray about world missions. 
asking God to use them in, in a mighty way to spread the kingdom of God to the nations. Now, I want you to realize in 1806, there was not a single mission agency in America. We didn't send foreign missionaries. There was not a single known American who was serving as a cross-cultural missionary. And yet these five students were praying exactly that, that God would somehow use them. In fact, this historian says, The brevity of the shower, the strangeness of the place of refuge, and the peculiarity of their topic of prayer all took hold of their imaginations and their memories. Well, these five students resolved to keep meeting and to keep praying, asking God to do something in their lives to reach the nations. This has gone down in history now as the Haystack Prayer Meeting. These five students, two years later, would meet another college student by the name of Adoniram Judson, who caught their vision to reach the nations and set sail with his wife of three weeks, Anne, and their friend Luther Rice, to India. On their way to India, they became Baptists. They sent Luther Rice back to America to organize Baptist churches to support their missionary, now serving not in India, but Burma. Within a handful of years, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed, today being one of the largest mission-sending agencies in the world. Thousands of missionaries into the darkest places of the world, all beginning from an impromptu prayer meeting by five college students on the backside of a haystack. And to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He said, it is like a mustard seed, which when planted grew into a great and mighty tree. You notice that Lord, the Lord is talking about the kingdom of God here in verse 18. What shall I uh, what, uh, what is the kingdom of God and to what shall I compare it, he says. Perhaps you are aware that when God created this world, man was perfectly united with God with no barrier whatsoever. The world was a paradise in which mankind was set to thrive. It was a place of no death or disease, hunger or injustice. There was no sadness or brokenness of any kind in this creation. You see, in the presence of the Creator, creation flourished. It thrived. It, it lived. And yet the humanity, humans, rebelled, didn't they? They wanted to take control. And in light of that rebellion, God barred them from His presence. In some way, creation become, became untethered from God. And, and now nothing works like it's supposed to work. This world is not functioning as God intended it to. Emotionally, we don't work the way we're supposed to. Spiritually, relationally, physically, things are not working like God wants them to work. One, one person described it this way. We're, we're like, we're like a fish trying to live in puddles, flopping around. And a fish can live in a puddle, but it's not a great life, right? Our puddles is too small. Whether you're living for your life or your family or even your country, that is a puddle far too small for how God has created you. God is an ocean and you are designed to let, live and to thrive in Him. That's, the, that's what the, the kingdom of God is. It's God coming back and returning things to the way they're supposed to be. And Jesus shows up. And He immediately begins to say, 
I've brought the kingdom of God. His very first ser- sermon is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then throughout his ministry, he, he tells us things like to seek the kingdom of God first or, or to when you pray, pray, Father, let your kingdom come or, or we're to receive the kingdom of God like little children. You see what Jesus is saying is you can be reunited with God. You can flourish for His glory. You can understand to some degree what peace and harmony and joy is like, what God intended you to, to have. And we see this wherever Jesus goes. I don't know if you've you noticed this in our study of Luke's Gospel. It seems like wherever He, he goes, life just begins to flourish. <laughs> it seems like wherever He steps, the, the, the desert turns into a garden. Whether it's backs being straightened or the sick being healed or families restored or idols destroyed or creation calming or oppression ending or demons scurrying away, right? Whether it's the grief and and the power of guilt kind of lose their influence, the captives are free, even the dead become alive. Wherever he goes, he brings life and and flourishing and and, and, uh, uh, thriving. That's where he... What he brings. And, and some of it, we've experienced this. We know what this is like to some degree. Of course, it's not complete, right? We still, we live in two ages. We live in the kingdom of God, and, and yet we still live in a fallen and broken world. But one day, it is going to be complete. God is going to return one day and undo the impact of all of our sin. And creation will be freed from evil and oppression and, and, and disease and sadness and hunger and death when Jesus rules perfectly as our king. That's what he's talking about, the kingdom of God. Now this gets me excited, um, especially in light of the current political season in which we're, we are living. Right? Um, now, we, we like democracy, right? We're Americans. I don't know if you studied our history at all, but we, we kind of have a thing about people who wear crowns, right? We don't like crowns in America. That's kind of our thing. Right? We like democracy. Democracy's advance and monarchy is somewhat primitive. Right? And, and I understand. That, that, that makes sense to me. Could you imagine one of the two individuals running for president, actually not becoming president, but becoming king or queen, where they could rule for life with unchecked power? Right? That's terrifying. Right? So I get it. The, see, the point, why, you know why democracy is better than, than monarchy? It's not because the citizens have this great access to wisdom and we always make the right choices. Right? It's because people are bad. And, and they're so bad, you don't want to give any of them unlimited power for life. This is what I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. He continues, Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. But what if, what if one was? What if there was a perfect king, perfect in wisdom and power and, and goodness and love for people? Wouldn't you want him to rule over us? 
Wouldn't you want to be in that kingdom? Jesus is saying, I have come and I brought the kingdom of God. And this is his, he's continually talking about this. But the problem that they're having with this is that when they hear kingdom of God, they hear big and, and powerful and intimidating and exciting. Remember uh, in the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's going to meet the, the wizard and they're walking down the, the long hallway and the organ's playing, right? And the, the flames are erupting and it's all very powerful and exciting and kind of scary. Well, when they hear kingdom of God, that's what they think, right? Big and powerful and loud. And Jesus knows this. And so he asks this rhetorical question, what is the kingdom of God like? It is, it is like a mustard seed, right? He begins to explain to us and starts explaining the kingdom of God by saying, it, it, it starts small, but will have amazing growth. Consider, first of all, this morning, the kingdom's surprising growth. He helps us understand this with two parables here that kind of explains how the kingdom will grow. And he begins by saying that this surprising growth will be massive. Massive growth. Verse 18, the Bible says, he said, therefore. And you notice that, that word therefore is linking us to what previously happened, the healing in the Sabbath. Remember that last week? And so the Sabbath healing teaches us something about the kingdom of God. Of course, I think part of it, what it teaches us is that in the kingdom of God, the, the, the demonic forces just run away and people are made well and whole and so forth. But one of the things that it helps us understand when he heals this woman who's been bent over for 18 years, that the kingdom of God does not come in these cataclysmic events, but rather in small, simple acts like healing an old woman. Right? It starts small. But it doesn't stay small. In verse 19, he says, The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. Right? It, it, the, the mustard seed is the smallest of all sown seeds in Israel. It's proverbial for tiny. And yet when you, you plant it, the, the, the seed will grow into this tree. It will grow into a, a, a tree that is 12 feet high. Right? And, and so it starts from this very, very tiny uh, uh, reality, and yet it grows and grows and grows and becomes very, very big. And so what Jesus is saying is don't confuse the small start of the kingdom of God with the, with the reality that it's not going to be big and massive. It's going to be much larger than you realize. Right? Because they're waiting for a conquering general, and, and instead they get a 30-year-old single man who's still living at home. Right? Who becomes a rabbi. Right? They're, they're waiting for a powerful army. And what do they have? They have a, a bunch of fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors all saying, He's the one we're waiting for. They're waiting for this triumphant victory. And instead, what do they get? They get the leader beaten, mocked, and crucified, surrounded only by a handful of weeping women. It seems so small. So insignificant. J.C. Ryle explained... Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty province in the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. And its first movements brought down on its friends 
persecutions from all quarters. He concludes saying, if ever there was a religion that was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. Right? It looks insignificant and weak like a mustard seed. And yet this seed will grow into this tree, Jesus says. And it, and it happened. It did exactly what he said. The seed went into the ground and it started growing and growing and growing. We know when Jesus ascended into heaven in the upper room praying, there was about 120 people there. Think of that. That's like a third of those who are here. Maybe about half of us. Right? 120 people. And with days, 120 went to 3,000, and then in 5,000. And soon they begin to send cross-cultural missionaries, first into Turkey, and then in, into Europe. And by the time Paul reached the end of his ministry, he says, I would really like to preach where, where people don't know Jesus, but I'm having trouble finding the place where I can go. And, and within 300 years, in the midst of hardship, and in, in the midst of persecution and trial, within 300 years, over 50% of the Roman Empire would identify themselves as followers of Christ. 32 million people from India to England would claim Jesus as their own. Could you imagine if you went up to Pilate when he was putting Jesus on trial and said, I just want you to understand, in a little while, the man you're about to crucify will be worshipped by your emperor as his God and Savior. Right? His massive, incredible growth. And now 2,000 years later, where is it? Every country on this earth is massive. Even where they try to stamp it out, it keeps growing. Like they did in China. When Mao Zedong took over and he wanted this, to, to end Christianity in China and he began to slaughter Christians. It just a campaign to kill all the Christians in China. But it wasn't working. They kept popping up all over the place. And so Mao decided, well, if I can't kill them, I'll discredit their faith. And so he took the remaining Christians that, that he had and he realized these Christians grow stronger when they're together. And so I'm going to separate them. I'm going to isolate them. And he took the remaining Christians he could find and forcibly scattered them throughout China, right, to die alone. In other words, the Chinese Communist Party was the greatest mission-sending agency in the 20th century, right? And he gave them humble jobs like garbage collectors, so they would have to go from house to house to house, right? And in 1940, there were a million Chinese Christians. Today, there are somewhere around 120 million Chinese Christians making it the most Christian nation in the world. It has grown into this massive tree and it's going to keep growing and growing till it reaches people from every tribe, language, and nation. As he said, it would happen. It's massive growth. But, but beyond that, as I just alluded to, it's this inclusive growth. You notice what he says at the end of verse 19. And the birds of the air made their nest in the branches. This is thus not a reference to the size of the kingdom. This is a prophecy about who will reside within the kingdom. Right? The tree is a, is a place where these birds will find shelter and, and, and safety. They'll, they'll find peace and protection there. Well, who are these birds? Well, there's a number of places in the Old Testament, Daniel 4 being one, Ezekiel 17, which was read for us a little while ago, where God says, I'm going to plant this tree and it will grow and grow. And, and eventually in its shade, the bran- the, in the shade of the branches, birds of every sort will come and reside. Those birds are a reference to the nations, that the nations will come and find protection in the kingdom of God as the tree is a refuge for these birds, so the, so the kingdom of God will be a refuge to, to the nations, to the Gentiles. And once again, it, it's happened, hasn't it? I mean, just look around. 
Um, I don't need to tell you we're not in Jerusalem this morning. Right? And you're not Jewish. At least most of you. Right? It's happened. Just as he said, we found our shelter in the kingdom of God, haven't we? We are, we are nesting there. We, we are the birds that have come and found our place in this kingdom. It's this inclusive growth. And then lastly, it's a hidden growth. He tells another parable here in verse 20. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? <laughs> it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, so this woman took some yeast or some leaven and, and hid it in it within this dough. Now I, I don't I don't know I don't know much about yeast. I'll just tell you that right now. But somehow it makes the the dough grow. I don't know. It's alive somehow, isn't it? It's like bugs or something like that. I don't quite understand. But it, you put it in there and it's living, and it works its way through through all all this dough. But the thing about it is you you don't. It's not dramatic, is it? You don't see it. It even said she, she hid it in there, right? You see its effects, but it's slow and methodical and hidden growth. See, the kingdom of God keeps getting bigger and bigger, but no one really seems to take notice, right? It's a little bit here, a little bit here, one person at a time. It's kingdom of God. God grows like a crippled woman stretching to her full height and praising God for what he has done. It grows when John Bunyan, perhaps one of my favorite authors, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps you know it is the second most read book in the English language behind the Bible. Did not start out as a Christian author, but as a blasphemer. A tinker by trade. His job was to fix pots and pans as he lived in poverty. One day he happened to be in a woman's kitchen working on one of her pans, and she and three of her friends were outside in the garden speaking about the glories of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the pleasures of heaven. Bunyan will write in his autobiography, They spake as if joy did make their hearts spake. And he would soon thereafter bow his knee to King Jesus. Just a, just a little bit of yeast, right? Just one at a time and lives are changed forever. This is how the kingdom's growing. It grows behind closed doors, as one has written, when a sinner kneels secretly in prayer to receive Jesus as Lord. It grows in the heart of a little boy or girl who promises to live for Jesus no matter what. It grows in the home when, by faith, a husband takes spiritual responsibility for his household and a wife respects her husband. It grows behind bars when prisoners hear the gospel. It grows in the, on the streets of the city when Christians show quiet mercy to people that society has forgotten. It grows in the lost places of the world where missionaries live out their faith in daily obedience to Christ. You see, there's no marching army. There's no political breakthrough. It's quiet. It's like yeast. The world doesn't even notice it. So, my friends, please take this truth and apply it to your hearts. Don't, don't be deceived. It seems like the, much of this world is saying Christianity is on demise. They just need to look around. God is going to do what He said He's going to do. In fact, He is doing it. But He doesn't always do it in a flashy way, in a big way. In fact, I think the big and the flashy and the immediate sometimes deceive us. Let God's Word guide us here. Let you and I continue our faithful, uh, simple obedience and service. Let us be the leaven to those who are around us. As we work the nursery or we pray for missionaries or we hand out tracts or we teach children the Bible or invite our neighbors to church or start a lunchtime Bible study at work and rejoice if one person shows up. It's like leaven 
silently, hiddenly, growing. Immediate results deceive us. God uses small acts and simple works to bring about massive changes. And He's doing it around this world, especially in the last hundred years. You know, today, 50,000 people in this world will bow their knee and receive Christ as their Savior. This week, 4,000 churches will start in this world. I know we hear that Christianity is on demise, but when you actually look at the statistics and you, you just look at evangelical, what I would say, biblical Christianity, and it's growing at twice the rate of the population of this earth, far faster than any other religion. In Brazil, the last decade, the church doubled. In Nigeria, in the last 25 years, the church increased by a factor of six. In 1980, we knew of about... 500 Christians in the nation of Iran. Today there are over a million Iranian Christians living in that totalitarian regime. In Nepal in 1980, there were 75 Christians. Today we know of 500,000 worshiping in 6,000 churches when 30 years ago there was not a single one. In Indonesia, in the past years, 60,000 churches have started. And we go on and on and on. This last century is the greatest missionary spread of the Christian faith that we have seen since the time of the apostles. He is doing what he said he would do. And nothing's going to stop him. He is building his church. Mass, it'll be massive. Reach every corner of this world. So he tells us two parables that the kingdom of God is massive, which raises a question asked in verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Right? Well, actually, how many will be saved, he asked. And he wonders if it's just a few. And and to be honest, I don't know why he thinks a few. Maybe he thinks it's just the Jews. And so he's somewhat confused by Jesus' parables. Um, and, and, And so Jesus has this conversation with this individual. Now, notice the context of the conversation in verse 22. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you noticed this in Luke's gospel yet, but every time Luke mentions the word Jerusalem, you and I should expect some very sober teaching and some very perhaps challenging and and urgent teaching. And we certainly see it here. So this man comes to Jesus and says, well, how many will be saved? There's going to be a lot saved, a few saved. And Jesus answers, once again, somewhat frustrating. He he says to him, in effect, stop worrying about uh, about others and worry about yourself. Right? How many people will be saved? Jesus asks, are you saved? Have you entered the kingdom of God? Which is good for us because we like to speculate, well, what about the guy on the deserted island never heard and so forth? Well, that, okay, that's interesting. Maybe there's a place for that. But first, let's find out about you. Right? Have you entered through the door? As we see secondly, Jesus explains the kingdom's narrow entrance. He does so in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door, he says. There is a narrow door into God's kingdom. Your house has a door, right? And so does the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a doorway to heaven, and we must enter through it. Jesus explains that this is not a big wide door. It is a narrow door. So what about the door makes it narrow? Well, narrow doesn't mean it's hidden. It doesn't mean it's hard to find. It's narrow... Because it's only through Christ that we can enter into the kingdom of God. Christ is the door. In fact, he would say so in John 10 and verse 9, saying of himself, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
And so why only Christ, though? I mean, why can't there be many doors? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but one, one way I would say is, well, you and I have sin to pay for, and the debt is so large that you can't pay your, for your debt, I can't pay for my debt, so we have to find someone else to pay it, and Jesus is the only one that I know who is both willing and able to do so. He did so on the cross. That's why he died. He didn't die because the revolution got out of hand. He died, went to the cross purposely. That was his intent in order to take the wrath of God upon himself to pay for my sin and for your sin. Three days later, he showed that he was telling us the truth when he rose historically, bodily, and physically from the dead, appearing to more than 500 people publicly. Right? So he takes it upon himself. This is why Christ is the only door. He's the only place in which we can find mercy and grace for our salvation. He says it's a narrow door. I imagine, and this is just my imagination, that it's this small little door where you have to kind of get on your hands and knees to crawl through. It's humbling, isn't it? Faith is humbling. You have to admit that you can't save yourself, that you need someone to rescue you, that you need someone to actually die in your place, right? And it's, it's, it's humbling, it's humiliating in many ways. And, and therefore, it's easy to stay out. And many will. As you see in verse 24... Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why are they not able? Because the door is shut. They didn't enter in time, as we see in verse 25. When the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door. Right? It's not that they don't care. Everyone will care whether they enter through this door. Everyone. Just many will care too late. They, they come, there comes a time when the owner actually gets up and he, he locks the door. He closes it. Just, just as Jesus taught us earlier in Luke 13. Remember the fruitless fig tree? Give it one more year, he says. And if it does not bear fruit, then cut it down. There is, there is an end to it. And, and many will find this locked door. There in verse 25, he says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the, at the door. I mean, that's the picture that he's giving us is that where people are pounding on the door. Open the door for us. Right? They want in. They want in badly. Notice what the owner of the house says to them there at the end of verse 24. And he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Right? If you knock on my door at 1 a.m., chances are I'm not going to let you in. Especially if I don't know you. Right? If you came at six, yeah, I'll probably let you in, even if I didn't know you. But you come once the door is shut and locked. I, I, I don't, I don't know you. I'm not going to let you in. It's too late. Well, look, look. Jesus says they won't be deterred in verse 26. Then they will begin to say, "We ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets." They're saying, "No, no, no. We know you. We we listened to you teach. We we ate with you." His response in verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord is is saying that many people believe they have a relationship with Jesus. They believe that they know him. They've been in his very presence, but in the end he says, I don't know you. you. You may know about me, but I don't know about you. 
And so we need to hear this very, trouble, I'll say, terrifying truth. That you can be in, around Jesus. You can know all about Jesus. But that is not enough. You can listen to Him week after week. You can come to church every Sunday of your life. But it comes down to the question, do you know Him? Familiarity with Jesus is not a relationship with Jesus. You notice this man does not say, no, no, no. I love you. We talk all the time. I worship you. I serve you. I want my life to live for you. No, he says, wait a second. We've been around each other. I've listened to you. I I go to church every Sunday. I hear your word taught. There are people filling our churches every Sunday who according to the Word of God will find the door closed. Will find it barred from them. Many think I'm in, but they're not. Have you walked through the door? Have you come in? Or have you spent your whole life considering the door? Looking at the door? Admiring the door? But never walking through There will be thousands and thousands and thousands of people who think they are Christians, whose friends think they are Christians, whose family thinks they are Christians, and will find the door closed to them. Have you walked through? Not not do you go to church, not do you pray before dinner, do you know Jesus? Is there a relationship with Jesus? Do you have you said to him, I believe you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, you're everything. Please forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you and please you. Is there a pursuit of Jesus? A delight in Jesus? Right? So many people say, Well, you know, you know, I'll enter later. I'll come in, right? There, there, there's still time, they say. And they, they stand outside the door and they're watching the door close slowly every minute of the day. But they think, well, the door's still open. There's still time. I'll enter later. Friends, there may not be later. This Friday, we, we had a 67-year-old neighbor living right next door to us who died in his bed. 67 years old. There is no later for him. It's like we have a fire on the second floor of the house and we say, well, I'm okay, it's up there. You know, I'll wait till it gets in the kitchen before I leave. Why would you want to fool with this? Why would you want to mess around with this? It's open now. Many people will say, I'll I'll come later and they don't have the opportunity. And if you don't come, listen to what he will say to you. These aren't my words. I don't even want to tell them to you. But they are Christ's words in verse 27. He will tell you, I do not, I, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. Go away, you evildoer. You do not belong here. So where do they belong? Well, he tells us, doesn't he, in verse 28? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell will be a place of weeping. There will be sadness and mourning and despair. Hell will be a place of gnashing. There will be anger and fury and rage. 
Have you ever seen someone so sad that they're just weeping profusely and, and, and their lips are, are, are quivering? Or have you ever seen someone so angry that their jaws clench tight and their face turns red and the veins are protruding from their neck and they're, they're grinding their teeth in, in rage? Forever and ever and ever. That's what hell will be like. You know why? He tells us why. why. Why are they weeping? Why are they gnashing? Because they see what they've lost. Look what he says, verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When? What? Why? When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but, but you yourself have been cast out. And the people, verse 29, that come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they recline at the table in the kingdom of God. You see, they'll be weeping and, and gnashing when they actually see what it is that they have lost. And it seems what the Lord is teaching us here, and does so elsewhere, that there is some awareness of those outside the kingdom, outside the locked door, of the jubilation of those who are inside. And the eternal torment in which they experience will be because of their awareness of the lost opportunity in which they had. Can you imagine being outside this house and the door is locked and you peer through the window and what do you see is this huge party going on. And, and there's Abraham and there's Jacob and, and there's, there's Isaac over there. And, and, and then there's all, all people from all, all the world and you look in and you see this banquet and, 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 and there's the Lord and He's sitting next to your mom. And there's your best friend over there, and, and there's your, your husband over there, and, and you're cast out. Right? What will you do? You will weep. You, you will think, I'm never going in. Right? I'm so close. I, I've watched that door all my life, and now I'm not going in, and I'm forever sent away. You'll see. You'll be filled with rage. You'll have a clenched jaw. You'll say, you can't do this to me. Right? You, people who depend upon their own goodness to get into the kingdom of God, when that does not get them in, they will curse God and say, How dare you cast me out? Thousands of people who claim Christ will be like this. In fact, I think he teaches us well what, what hell is like, what happens in hell. And there's a lot of debate. And, and, and you know, what is it? What does he throw coals on people's head? Does he prick people with pins for all eternity? I don't think so. I, I wonder if he simply just removes his presence from them. He said, away from me, he says, depart from me. You're cast out, you're shut out from the presence of the Lord. And you might say, well, that, okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Okay, I'm away from God. I would suggest to you that everyone is living off the presence of God. God is like the sun, Right? And we're all living off the sun. You may live your whole life in the cave, but I tell you, the sun is keeping you alive, even if you've never seen it for one moment. He is, he is that way. God is, is everything that is joy and beauty and, and delight and passion. He is the source of all of that. I don't know, have you ever been moved by music or maybe a wonderful meal? It's because God has created music and, and food and it's a reflection of His majesty. Or have you ever been moved by being on a mountaintop or seeing a sunset? That's simply a reflection of the glory of God. you ever been moved by the warm embrace of a loved one? That's a reflection that we're made in God's image. But we all are living off the presence of God. He is the source of all that is good and joyful. And you take that away from you, everything will change. 
you'll find you can't love. You find you won't be loved. You, you don't even want to be loved. You'll appreciate nothing. You'll have delight in, in nothing. There'll be no, no delight in anything. No source of joy whatsoever. You've been cut off from the source of joy, namely God. God doesn't prick people with pitchforks for eternity. The sun goes out. He removes His presence from them. And in case you think I've taken this too far, is this not what happened to Jesus? Is this not what Jesus shows us? Right? Doesn't He show us what hell is like? Doesn't Christ show us what judgment is like? On the cross, what's happening? Is God raining down fire on Jesus or putting His feet in acid? No. He removes Himself. He leaves Jesus. He says to Jesus, Depart from me, you worker of evil. I don't know you. And he leaves. The sun goes out. He who knew the glory and the joy of the presence of God in ways that you and I cannot even fathom lost it. God left him. I think that's hell. I know people don't. I mean, this is obviously very uncomfortable. And especially in our culture, people... (laughs) Well, there's many doors to heaven we keep hearing, isn't it? Is that what we hear? Well, that's fine if you believe that. Just realize you are disagreeing with Jesus because it's very clear in this passage. says, no, there's one and it's only through me. Right? There's many doors. We want to be able to choose the one we like best. I mean, that's the American experiment, isn't it? That we have freedom to choose whatever we want without any constraint upon us. We see the, the implications of that in our culture right now. We get to choose. We are the master. And so don't say that Jesus is the only way. What if I don't want to go to Jesus, right? And, and if you say Jesus is the only way, that's intolerant, isn't it? It's narrow-minded. It's even bigoted, right? Isn't that what we say? Well, let me just remind you, it's His kingdom. Okay? And, and you're mad at him for only having one door. And I don't know if you could imagine coming to someone's house, they invite you over and you stand outside and, and, and they come out and say, hey, well, come on in, what's going on? And you say, well, you know, I, I don't like that door. I'm not going through that door. Don't you have any other doors? Why do you only have one door? No, it's the only door, come on in. What, what, if, what if they try to make their own door? Right? What, what are you doing with an axe at the side of my house? Well, you know, I, I was hoping to, I want to create my own door, they might say. Right? It's his house. Right? We should be thankful he invites us over and all. And by the way, though the door is narrow, do you understand the invitation is wide? Do you know who he invites over? Everybody, including his enemies. He is welcoming wicked rebels like me into his house. How many, have you done that? Hmm? How, how many of you say to people who have harmed you, who have mocked you, who have betrayed you, my home is open to you, please come over? Right? How many of us invite our enemies into our house so that we might bless them and love them and have them sit at our table and serve them uh, and, and try to increase the joy and delight in their life? I'll tell you, God is better than all of us. None of us deserve to be there. And yet He's opened a door to us all. Have you come in? Have you entered? I would like to warn you, as Jesus does, that unless you enter through Christ, this door will be shut upon you forever. And for eternity, you will weep over the stubbornness of your own heart that you had an opportunity on September 25th, 2016, to come and you let it pass by. 
If you do come, I would like to share with you, lastly this morning, what it will be like. Just a glimpse as we consider third, the kingdom's global celebration. You notice who's there, verse 28, tells us that we will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you got the patriarchs, you have all the prophets going to be there. Elijah, Ezekiel, Jonah, right? They'll all be there. And that's not all. Verse 29, people from the east and west, north and south, right? Um, so you got the big three, the prophets, and a bunch of no-name Gentiles, right? That's us. We will be there by God's grace. Believers from everywhere, from the east and the, and the west and the north and the south. You say, is Christianity exclusive? Yes. You may come to God only through Christ. But is Christianity inclusive? Yes. Far more than any of the silly religions that we have made up. It invites all peoples in regardless. There will be this wonderful ethnic completion in the kingdom of God. And of course the central focus will not be upon what nation you come from or what flag you fly, right? If we, if we, what color your skin won't matter at all. It will all be about Jesus Christ. As we read, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It doesn't matter. They're all one. There's no male or female. It doesn't matter. Free or slave. We're all one in Christ. One people of God. And that's who will be there. And I'll tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, years from now, or perhaps in just a matter of minutes, people from every tribe, language, and nation will gather together and praise God. And if you have gone through, you will be with them too. The Bible says in Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and He will reign forever and ever. Amen, Amen indeed. Well, what will we do? Well, there's many passages we can look at, but just consider, well, we're going to do one of my favorite things, so we're going to eat. Right? Verse 29, amen. And the people will come in, you see, from the east and west, and from the north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. We'll feast and laugh and fellowship at this great international banquet. There will be Jesus. By the way, if you, the, the most ubiquitous description of heaven, the, the description of heaven we see the most throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, is, is feasting. It's not floating on clouds. It's not harp music, as wonderful as it is. It's celebration. It's feasting. It's being with each other. It's delight. We'll be there with Jesus at home with God and our souls satisfied in His presence. This massive party, right, without sin, without temptation, in our resurrected bodies, all sickness conquered, sadness destroyed, the Savior glorified, all the nations united in peace under the reign of our gracious King. Can you just imagine what that'd be like? Can you can you imagine when we just sit down at the table and we look at each other and we think, we're here. We've made it. This is it forever. We have made it. All that garbage is gone forever. We're here. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and friends, you would do well and I would do well to, to set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, one, Set our hearts on things above. Imagine, anticipate, be filled with joy in the midst of your troubles in life, thinking about the destination in which you are going. Uh, for my 40th birthday, I, I, I was able to go backpacking in a place that I've always wanted to go backpacking, in Glacier uh, uh, National uh, Park up in uh, northwestern Mont- Montana. 
But it, one of the things about glaciers, a lot of people want to go there, and it's hard to get into the backcountry. You have to submit a permit six months in advance, and you give them your itinerary of what you want to do. And then it, they put all the itineraries in a lottery, and then they just draw names to see who's going to get the reservation. And I remember getting my reservation back, and I got everything that I wanted to do. And I, I was going to see all the, the peaks and the passes and the alpine lakes that I wanted to see. And I was just elated. And, I, and for months, I'm just looking at pictures and buying guidebooks and getting new gear and, and exercising and, and, and learning how to survive a grizzly attack. And, and all these wonderful, incredible, it was just, it was so much fun. And the real joy is, is months away. I mean, the actual trip was thousands of times better than the anticipation. And yet there was joy in the anticipation. And you know what that's like, whether it's a vacation or a, a retirement or a coming child or a wedding, right? Or a sporting event. You know what it's like to, to have the joy and the anticipation of what's coming to you. Well, let the prospect of this eternal banquet in the kingdom of God fill your heart with joy in the anticipation of it. Let it occupy your imagination with the greatness of it. And it is, of course, all by God's grace, as we see in verse 30. And behold, some, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. He's saying those who, who thought they were on the inside will be put out, and those who always thought they were outsiders will be brought in. This, of course, is a reference to the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus up to this point in Luke's Gospel. Those people who have received the covenants, who are first to know about God, who are chosen by God, not in, in exclusion of the nations, but to be a blessing to the nations, and yet kept rejecting Him and even rejected their Messiah. They will be cast out, many of them. They're hardened now. You look in verse 35. We know he's talking about it. Israel, because he begins to talk specifically about Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, your house is forsaken. At least it will be for some time. The Gentiles, he thought, on the other side of the world, he says, the last will be first. They'll, be, they'll come and embrace me. They'll be at my banquet. But this is not just about Jew and Gentile. I think this is also about those people who have heard the gospel all their life, who have been in nursery from their very birth, and every Sunday their parents bring them to church, and they come to Jesus, and they just say, whatever, whatever. They're complacent. They don't come through the door. And others who know nothing of God, like, like I did for 16 years, well, never heard about Christ. One day someone comes up and loves me enough to tell me about Jesus, and I receive, receive Christ. And he says, the last will be first. Right? What, what have you done? Who, who are you? Are you the last or are you the first? Will you, will you be in or will you be out? Can you imagine? Just think for a moment. What it will be like to be banging on that door. I mean, what, what would it be like to see people who, who love you and who have told you the truth inside celebrating for eternity and what you hear is, I don't know you, go away. Just cast out for all eternity. I mean, can you even imagine what that would be like? See yourself just banging and weeping and screaming, it's not fair. This is the... This is the image that Jesus gives. Not my image. He's putting this in our minds. This is why he tells us this. Tell me, Jesus, how many people will be saved? 
Answer, you better get in before the door is shut. By God's grace, I will be in. By the mercy of the Lord, by the faith He's put in my heart, I have absolute confidence I will be in, not by my own works, but by His goodness. But my fear is that while I'm in there sitting next to Abraham, I happen to look out the window and I see someone pointing their finger at me. Someone who says through that window, you knew what this was going to be like. And you never told me. How come you never warned me? Christians, there are people in our life that need to hear this as difficult as it is. And there are people I have no doubt in this room that need to come in even now. Have you come through the narrow door? Don't complain about the door. Don't search for another door. Don't stare at the door. Don't rest your hand on the knob of the door. Come in. Come in now before it is too late. Look what he says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the door. Right? Not, not, not leisurely walk through the door. Run for it. Run for the door, he says. Get in. You see the language in which he's communicating. Strive by the grace of God to get in. Listen, the Christian faith is not a leisurely faith. It is a striving faith. It is a passionate faith. A zealous faith. It is a faith that cries, Jesus, you are everything to me. And he should be everything to you. Because he is not only the door, but he's also the seed, isn't he? Christ is the seed that was put into the ground. There died for us. The smallest of seeds, some insignificant miracle worker in the corner of the world, has become the largest of trees. He has become the tree of life. And all who would take its fruit will live forever. He's done everything he will do. And now you decide. Will you come? I want to let you know as we end our time this morning, as soon as you leave this room, the world is going to scream at you for its attention, isn't it? It's going to be loud. Kids will be loud. My kids will be loud. Your hunger will be loud. The commercial will be loud. The watch will be loud. Everything's going to be loud. Everything's going to be demanding your attention. Maybe right now, God has your attention. Won't you come right now? Perhaps you would pray silently to Him in your heart. Even now as I speak, Lord Jesus, I believe You are the Son of God. I believe You have died for my sins. I believe You rose on the third day. I believe You are my only way to God. Maybe you would pray to Him even now in the silence of your heart, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. I bow my knee to you. I submit my life to you. I will do what you say and go where you send. You are everything to me. The Bible says that we must believe and repent. We must trust him who he is. And repent is to submit our lives to him forever. In a moment, Dawn's going to come up and and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I will be down forward as I am every Sunday. If you would like to receive prayer, I would invite you to come and to pray with me that we might uh, perhaps continue this conversation as we seek our God and His Savior.
Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. I am so thankful that by your grace, we, many of us have come in. I don't want to be in the place of weeping and ashes. And I'm thankful that forever I will avoid that. Not because I'm good. No, because Christ is good. Fill our hearts with the anticipation and joy of what we have received and what we have avoided by your grace. And we pray for perhaps the one or two here or maybe many more. And perhaps know in their hearts, you're telling them right now by your spirit that they've been playing a game. They've been looking at the door, but they have not come in. Will you not even now cause them to believe that they might receive Christ and salvation forever? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.